Hey, SBCC family, Jason Miller here. This is the last episode of Teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, work that we've been doing together since last fall. And I'm really excited to share it with you all as we come down to the last few things that Jesus says to us in that teaching. Uh, before we get to that, though, uh, I also want to make sure that you know that this is a critical moment for the whole church family, uh, local, long distance, in-person, digital, because right now, this week, between now and Easter, we're finalizing our financial commitments to the Tribune Project. And I just want to make sure that you know what a difference you can make as we approach a real fork in the road on the project. So let me tell you just briefly about a couple of different possible futures that we're looking at. Uh, I'm recording this on Monday, April 11th. And right now we have a staggering and humbling $1,421,000 committed to the project. Uh, that's really beautiful. Based on early estimates for the cost of renovations, at $1.5 we can do a phased version of the project. In this scenario, we wouldn't be able to renovate the part of the building intended for our gatherings, like the adult gathering area. Rather, in this phased approach, we would take the area that's ultimately intended to be the lobby, and we would subdivide that part of the building into a small lobby and a gathering area. And at some point in our future, then, we would need to do another funding project to complete the vision for the building. However, and here's the fork in the road, there's another future, there's an alternative that we think is in reach. If we get to $2 million in total commitments, we can do a basic version of the vision that we've shared for the building with the lobby and the kids' ministry area and the adult gathering area in that beautiful vaulted ceiling industrial cathedral-like room that you've hopefully seen in the project film. And of course, uh, if we get to the, the big goal of $3 million in commitments, then we can deliver on the full scope of the entire project. Uh, if you want to make a commitment to give to the project over the next two years, either in cash or other in-kind assets like stock or crypto, yes, we are prepared to accept gifts of cryptocurrency. Just head to southpencitychurch.com. Uh, you'll see all the information there about the project and a link to the commitment form. Uh, and I want to make sure that you know this too. Uh, from the beginning of SBCC, those of you who listen to the podcast and contribute financially, uh, you've been a huge part of making all of this work possible. And we've seen that on this project uh, too, with commitments coming from as far away as the Philippines. And we are um, especially humbled to know that some of you who may never set foot in the building are still choosing to help make this possible. And we wanna make sure that you know that your commitment to this project can make a huge difference right now. So uh, that's the word. Uh, we'll get on to the teaching episode. As always, friends, wherever you are, we send you love and so much grace and peace. Guys, today's the last text from the Sermon on the Mount. Nice. Nice. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. This is Jesus' final word in the sermon. That's it. And what stands out to me in blazing terms right now is he actually meant for us to take these teachings seriously. And maybe that's obvious, but I don't know. Because there's a lot of ways that we all like, distance ourselves from like, the plain things that he's saying to us. And I'm going to say more in a minute about why I think that might happen and how 
understandable it is. But I, do, I want to just observe, he actually intends for us to take these things seriously. It's like he's saying there's a bedrock of reality that I'm teaching you about that you could actually live your life on. But if you don't heed these words and take them seriously, you're not building your life on that bedrock of ultimate reality. You're building it on something else, an illusion that will fail you at some point. And I want you to know that I'm trying to tell you how to actually build a life. And this is like a big deal for all of us, especially who spend a lot of time like in Christian spaces or Jesus spaces because of all that static I was talking about, all that sort of peripheral noise that can happen around the Jesus thing, right? Uh, I've shared this story before, but it was so compelling to me. It seared into me. Uh, Do you know the phrase they said the quiet part loud? It's like they said the thing that nobody says and they told the truth. I was having dinner uh, with this couple. They're Christians. And and they had a lot of questions for me. Uh, They were um, concerned about my influence on their son's life. Their son's like 30 years old, by the way. But... (laughs) We had dinner. Um, ordinarily, I don't take this kind of meeting. So if you have parents, sorry, like I'm not taking that meeting with the rest of you. Um, but we had dinner. And by the way, I don't tell this story to mock these people. Um, it's just this thing happened in the conversation that was so striking to me. And they really wanted to know what I believed theologically about a lot of things, about the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross, about the way that I read uh, Paul's letters, about the meaning of the word gospel. And as we were talking, I was trying to say, like, Look, just so you know, my starting point for the gospel is the gospels. Because Matthew is called the gospel according to Matthew, and Mark is the gospel according to Mark, and Luke is the gospel according to, Like, that's my starting point. Like, I want to start there and then build out from that and interpret with Paul and all this stuff. But we, we kind of went round and round, and you could just tell, like, we were missing each other in the conversation. You know, because you have to have enough common ground to have a meaningful disagreement, right? And it felt like we, didn't, we weren't even, like, standing on enough common ground to meaningfully interact with each other. And then finally... Um, one of them said this. They just said it straight to my face, and it was so helpful for me because then I understood why we were missing each other. He said, well, I don't think you can get your theology from Jesus. That's the quiet part loud, right? That's the thing happening in a lot of our lives. A lot of us who, like, like latch onto this Jesus thing or spend time in Christian spaces, a lot of us in church life, like, if we were as honest as this guy was, we would say the same thing that we don't think you can actually get your theology from Jesus. You can't actually learn how to live from Jesus. You can't actually learn about ultimate reality and how to live in harmony with ultimate reality from Jesus. It's as if we've become the kind of people who think that Jesus wants to save us, but he has nothing to say to us. Which is ironic, because we have page after page after page in Holy Scripture of him saying stuff to us, right? And I'm not trying to call that guy out. I'm trying to call all of us out. Because if we're being honest, right, we would all probably have to admit that there's ways that we just, like, don't understand that Jesus has things to say to us. And what if, hang with me now, what if part of Jesus' saving work is the things he says to us? Now, I don't have time to, like, build out a whole systematic theology with you today. I'm not saying that's the whole deal, okay? But what if the things he says to us are part of how he leads us into the kind of life that he calls salvation, how he, the, how he leads us into what he calls eternal life, which is life with God. Like life in union with God, where we are reconciled to God and in the flow of God, in harmony with God. And what if all these teachings have something to say to us about that? Now, the reason I think a lot of us don't end up there, myself included, is because, frankly, the ways that we actually live that are in, in con. Uh, in contrast to the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, 
It's actually us doing the things that we think will lead to a life built on solid rock, right? Like we seek security and self-preservation. We seek all these things because we have this sort of, this sort of like at the base of our brainstem, like survival mode way of being in the world that moves toward the things that we think will make us safe because that's what we think it means to build a life on solid rock. But those things end up being in total like contrast in contradiction to the things that Jesus is saying about how to actually build a life on solid rock, right? I mean, think about any movement in your life. I can think about the movements in my life toward greed, toward security, toward self-preservation, toward groupism, where I want to know who's on my team and who's not on my team so I can divide the world neatly into those who are safe and those who are not, and I can circle the wagons and make sure I'm protected, All of these movements, if we're honest, they feel like we are moving towards solid life, safe life, that we're building a life for ourselves that will be well defended, right? But at the end of his great teaching, after Jesus tells us to be vulnerable in the world, to open our hearts to the life of God and our poverty of spirit and our mourning and lament, after Jesus tells us that your interaction with your enemy has to be the kind of thing that loves them and doesn't just return evil for evil, after he says all these absurd things that would make you think that your life will be laid so vulnerable in the world, he says that's actually the kind of life that will endure. And all of our schemes and strategies and mechanisms for making ourselves safe in the world, those are the things that will ultimately be revealed as built on a bad foundation that's going to crumble one day. This is how he wraps it all up. It's, it's like the opposite of the way that we naturally think about how to build a long, good, sustainable life in the world. And then here's the interesting thing. I think if we really took Jesus seriously, if we heard everything he said, And then we we take in these final words about this is how you actually build a life on solid rock. I think a lot of us would probably sit back and say, I don't know, man. (laughs) Who are you again? Can I see your credentials? And that would be a natural thing to say because the things he's telling us to do, the way he's telling us to be, they're so counterintuitive, right? Uh, But there's this thing then at the end of Matthew 7, right after we hear the last words of Jesus, we then hear commentary on the way his words were received. This is actually the last words of Matthew 7. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. And a lot of commentators have wondered what was the nature of that authority that they sensed? And one of the predominant themes in these interpretations is that Jesus' authority came from the force of his actual life. If you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you hear this picture of life with God, and then you read Matthew 8. So the next page in Matthew's gospel is this litany of healing stories from Jesus. Now, the healing stories can seem kind of spectacular, and they are, and they can seem um, almost whimsical. But if if you sort of move to another place to, to read these texts, the other thing that you see is that in the wake of his life, there was actual healing. That his way of being in the world brought healing in the world. That the force of his life, the witness of his life, the power of his life was that it actually put things back together in the world. And a lot of commentators have argued that that's what's meant by this authority here. That they could sense that underneath the words there was a life. Like underneath all this thinking there was a lot of living. that, That undergirded and corroborated these words and gave them power and authority. And this is, um, 
This is more than a guy who sat and read some books, right? Although Jesus seems to be quite learned, actually, if you read him carefully. This is more than a guy who's good with words, although he seems to be pretty good with words if you read him quite carefully. This is a person with the force of a life underneath these words that gives them authority. And you just turn one page and you see the wake of his life, that there's healing that trails behind him wherever he goes. That seems to be the kind of thing that began to help people who heard absurd teachings about ultimate reality, counterintuitive visions about how you actually build the best, most beautiful, most enduring kind of life. But they heard these things and then they see the force of his life and they say, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, because we all accumulate all this evidence, this um, distracting evidence about how to make ourselves safe and how to protect ourselves in the world. In spite of all of that, they seem to trust what he was actually saying because of the force of his life. I had a little example of this um, that really struck me last year. So uh, hang with me for a moment, a brief story. Uh, last year I had the chance to go spend a couple of days with a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas. And Hauerwas is the GOAT, you guys. Uh, he's like 82 years old, or 81. Uh, he spent years here at Notre Dame in South Bend before he went on to Duke where he uh, lived out the rest of his career. Uh, in 2001, Time Magazine named him America's best theologian. I have no idea what qualifies Time Magazine to make that judgment, but the dude had Time Magazine calling him America's best theologian. He's the only American in four decades to be invited to give the Gifford Lectures in England, which is a big, 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 big deal that you don't care about, but trust me, it's a big deal. Like, like it's like he won the Nobel Prize for theology if there were such a thing. And I mean, the dude, the dude is uh, renowned. He is a highly esteemed theologian. I had this really beautiful privilege to spend two days with him. It was just me and like seven other pastors, and we were actually working on his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, if I got any of this wrong, it's his fault, by the way. <laughs> anyway, um, I've been in the room a couple of times in my life with rock star theologians, like world-renowned theologians. And it may not surprise you that they are subject to the same temptations of ego as every other human being on earth. I mean, can you imagine not just being an academic, highly published, best-selling author, but also being a theologian who speaks for God? And having like the whole world tell you for six decades, hey, you're really good at this? That can generate its own kind of ego. And so the thing that really moved me was what I noticed on his little um, desk one day. So here's a picture of Stanley in the room. Isn't that a great quote behind him, by the way? Beauty is one of God's names. This is me from my, my seat, um, taking a shot of the rock star theologian while we learned from him. The first session, the first day, he, had, he, he walked in. He's from Texas, he's the son of a bricklayer, and he's famous for his crude mouth. We walk in, the first thing he says is, well, I don't know who the hell you are. <laughs> so we went around and introduced ourselves. And it's just the littlest thing, but it struck me so much that this next picture here is what I saw when I looked at his table. You probably can't see that, but it's the name of each person uh, in our little cohort, young scrappy pastors, and the town that we're from. The very last one says Jason South Bend. Most of my theology professors have never bothered to remember my name or my hometown. And this guy has absolutely no reason to take such notice of one more audience in a long stream of audiences in his life, right? It's such a small act of humility and, and, and paying attention, but it struck me so deeply and it changed the way I received those two days of teaching from him. Um, and by the way, every, every other bit of how he interacted with us um, 
corroborated the same kind of like honest, gentle humility, this desire to just see us and serve us and pray for us. And it struck me that that's probably a tiny little echo of what it was like to not just hear Jesus' brilliant counterintuitive teachings, but then to believe there was an authority behind them because they were corroborated with the life that he lived and the healing that followed him in his wake. Curiously, um, the events that we turn to this week, Holy Week, if you're sort of following along in real time, at first it really looks like we finally discovered that he was naive all along. He has been saying at this point in the story, as we move toward Holy Week, after three years of teaching and healing and working in the world, he's been saying all these strange counterintuitive things about how to actually build a life built on solid rock. And if you're one of the skeptics, and there's plenty of days when I'm one of the skeptics, and if I'm following along in real time, I'm thinking to myself, no, dude, see? This is how it goes when you lay down your defenses in the world. You're a chump when you love your enemy. You're a fool when you bless those who curse you because they will sense the weakness in you and they will come for you and they will take you out. And there's a moment on Good Friday and, and through Saturday where it really looks like he was naive all along. That all of our strategies for security and self-preservation and groupism, like all of those actually are the ways that you secure yourself. And his counterintuitive, contradictory way of being in, in the world and with God, it does reveal itself to ultimately be naive. That's what it looks like for a moment in Holy Week, isn't it? Which is why the resurrection is so important. Because at the resurrection, we discover, in fact, that the things that Jesus was saying all along were true. That this is actually the invincible kind of life, paradoxically, counterintuitively. It's the life of vulnerable, self-giving love, enemy love, blessing those who curse you, Refusing to objectify others or exploit others or squeeze others for what you can get out of them. This way of self-giving love and vulnerability in the world. This is actually the invincible kind of life. I mean, it could take you all the way down and out, but that won't be the end. And all of our strategies for safety and security, they look like they are up and to the right until the end when they prove to be nothing. Right? And so here at the end of his sermon, Jesus says, please like, hear what I'm saying. Do what I'm telling you to do. Not because you've got to perform it for God, not because you've got to check it off your list or prove yourself, but because this is the nature of a life that's actually built on ultimate reality that we call God. And then we turn to Holy Week and we see it all play out through cross and resurrection. Um, by the way, people who are being baptized next week, we're doing baptisms on Easter. It's not too late to sign up, by the way. You can sign up uh, right out there on the clipboard or go online. People who are being baptized, another way of thinking about that act is that they are saying that against all odds, counterintuitively, I am trusting that this other way of being in the world with God is the way to be. And so there's an act of dying to all those strategies of security and self-preservation and trusting that when you die to those things, you're going to get raised up in a whole new, different kind of life. And we're going to celebrate that with people next week in baptism, and you can be a part of that, either by being baptized or by being here for the party and being a part of the witnessing community who says to those being baptized, we see you and we affirm you and we love you and we're with you. So it's a whole family event next week for people who, against all odds, are learning to trust the authority of this counterintuitive teacher who has things to say to us as he saves us and leads us into the enduring kind of life. Uh, let's turn to the Eucharist. This is a potent reminder 
that when God gave God's life to the world, he did it in flesh and blood. These are not theories for Jesus. It is his very way of being in the world. God giving God's life to us and for us and for the world through Christ. And perhaps today when we come to the table, we will look for nourishment or strength. But maybe we'll come to the table to be reminded of the pattern that Jesus is showing us. Maybe we'll discover that there's some strategy for safety or security or self-preservation that we need to lay down so that we can pick up the way of vulnerable self-giving love in the world that Jesus tells us is actually the truest, best, most secure way to be. That's actually like a house built on solid rock. Uh, None of us arrives at this overnight, right? We are all works in progress. Um, As I've meditated on this last um, word from Jesus, I said this last week and I feel it again today. I'm painfully mindful of how much of my life right now is still built on sand. So this isn't a transaction, an overnight sensation, a quick fix. And there's no point in hanging our heads for the fact that we are works in progress, but there is this other sacred word called conviction, which has nothing to do with shame or self-defeat. It has to do with trust. That there's a voice called love that wants to keep leading us toward real life, toward building the enduring kind of life with God and with one another. And all these warnings that we hear from Jesus, they come from the the place of love, saying you have the freedom to walk however you want to walk, to become whatever you want to become, for better or for worse. But I'm imploring you, I'm calling you, I'm telling you, if you want, God wants to actually give God's life to you and live God's life through you. And as you learn how to surrender to that, and to leave behind your strategies for security and self-preservation. As we do that, we will discover a radically different kind of life rising up within us. And it'll be a little bit like resurrection. We might be dead in the flesh, totally gone and done, and yet something new and enduring will be raised up within us. And we come to this table learning how to trust that promise and surrender to it uh, one day at a time. As I break this bread, I'll invite those who are going to serve you to come up and join me on the stage. And as they do that, let me remind you that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was there with his friends and he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then he took a cup and he said, this is the cup of a new promise made in my blood and the gift of my life for the world. It's the fidelity, the faithfulness of a God who says, I will keep giving myself to you. There will be no end to my love for you. I will keep meeting you on that day at a time walk toward the new life of God's kingdom. And so loving God, this Palm Sunday, as we remember Jesus who enters the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, who even in that faithful act demonstrated the vulnerable, counterintuitive, unexpected life that you give. Uh, We pray that these elements would be for us, his life given for us and for the world. That you would help us to continue to lay down our strategies for security and self-preservation so that we can instead pick up the way of the cross of vulnerable love. 
pray that you would raise up new life within us as we die to the old life. That we would know mercy and grace, love and peace in this meal. We pray these things through Christ. And we all said, It's the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. It's the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. You're welcome to go to the tables to serve now. And friends, if you'd like to be at the table with Jesus and with this family today, uh, you're welcome as soon as they're in place to get up out of your seat and go to the table to receive. Hey, podcast fam, I just wanted to jump on here and make sure that we extended the invitation to come to the table to not only those in our physical gatherings as Studebaker 112, but to our family all across the world. So if you would like to participate in the Eucharist with us this week, Go find some sort of bread or cracker and wine or juice. Take a minute to hit pause or listen to the next couple seconds of piano. And take time to come to the table with your SBCC community. Don't forget, you can make a Tribune Project commitment this week online or use the printout right outside the curtain there. This Holy Week, uh, may you know the words of Jesus, who came not just to save us, but who had something to say to us about all of our strategies for security and self-preservation and how they all end up failing us, even while God, who gives God's self to us, will not fail. May we continue to be students of Jesus. May we know his power and his life. May we know his death and his way of dying. That we too could become like those poor in spirit who found the kingdom of heaven was theirs. May we walk into Holy Week uh, with a sacred remembrance of the things that God has done for us. And may we look forward to Easter and the celebration. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all.